What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, this week is the 10-year anniversary of the decision, LeBron James's nationally televised special in 2010, where he picked the Miami Heat and the pleasures of South Beach over returning to dreary Cleveland, Ohio to play with the Cavaliers. Um, in hindsight, you know, probably not the most controversial and, and illogical decision, but at the time, it was obviously a very, very big deal. Um, he wound up undoing a lot of the damage by going home in 2014, as we know, winning the title in 2016, as everybody remembers. But Michael, I wanted to um, use the decision's 10th anniversary as a jumping off point for discussion of the 10 worst NBA decisions of the past decade. How does that sound? This is, I I mean, I I don't think I've ever been more excited to do an episode with you, Ben. Yeah, this is sort of like um, the Mount Rushmore of mistakes (laughs) or something like that. I don't know exactly what we're going to call it, but we're going to dig into that in a minute. Before we do, what do you remember about the decision, Michael? Where were you? How did you watch it? What was your initial reaction? Obviously, I alluded to some of the controversy and the you know the burn jerseys and the accusations of treason, and mm-hmm. he's turning his back on Ohio, and um, you know he's not going to do it like Jordan did it, all that kind of stuff. Where did you come down uh, that summer of 2010? So I was. This was probably thinking back the peak of my own personal NBA fandom, just loving the NBA as someone who's not covering it on a professional level. So I was just out of college. Uh, I did not have a girlfriend. I was reeling from the 2010 finals, which had just occurred uh, a couple weeks prior. I was convinced. Oh, Michael, what happened (laughs) in those finals? I forget. We don't need to go over it. Um, I was convinced that the Celtics were the best team, that they got robbed because Kendrick Perkins uh, tore his ACL in Game 6. But again, we do not need to rehash those events. Um, And I was just obsessed with Boston getting back to the finals in 2011 and uh, potentially uh, going up against the Lakers again, which is what I wanted to see and what I thought would happen. And then, so, I, so when he says "take my talents to South Beach," your first thought is, "Oh God, we're not getting back to the finals in 2011." Oh, not at all. No, I was extremely confident in Boston still at that point, and a part of that might have just been pure delusion, and me just convincing myself that the Celtics were better and that they had experience and that the their years kind of battling together would allow them to have better chemistry and all that junk. Um, but I remember I was just watching it. I was living in my parents' basement at the time, literally blogging from my parents' basement. And I just remember watching it on this like boxy standard definition television with a good friend of mine and we were just like really excited we we, you know the eastern conference had been and kind of was still going to be for the next umpteen years just really garbage and so to have this really exciting team to have another potential budding rivalry because i was sick of watching the celtics play the Cavs and play teams like the magic just like there wasn't a lot of real great competition the pistons era was just dying 
So I was excited, and uh, I I love villains, and this team was giving me just a lot of fuel, and I oh hate so that. <laughs> it was like it was like the satisfying team that you wanted to overcome. Like Boston's 2011 title would be so magical because you exactly. had to go through the heatles. Oh, interesting. Exactly. So yeah, it's like an us against the world type of thing, which is really easy to conjure when you're from Boston. So, so that that's where my head was at for sure. I think that's one of their biggest legacies, though, the Heatles, of just being a team that was either loved or hated, right? And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, really hated. And they were just such an easy target. Um, you know, eventually, I think they won over some of the casual fans, you know, during the long winning streak or when they put the two titles together. But especially at the start, um, you know, they just leaned so heavily into, like, the warm weather climate, the glitz and glamour, their Hollywood as hell, as Joakim Noah said, you know, the the uh, preseason celebration where they're saying they're going to win eight titles. I mean, all of it was just like, if you weren't a fan of one of those players individually, or you weren't living in the 305, if you weren't personally Pitbull or Rick Ross, all of it was just like very, very off-putting, but also magnetizing in a way because you wanted to watch them, uh, you know, watch them fail. Um, I remember just watching it at home, uh, you know, typing along, tweeting along, uh, in real time with, with basically what was then a much smaller NBA Twitter community. I remember it blew my mind. Um, I didn't really see it coming. I guess I just assumed that he would do whatever Jordan had done, which is just stay home and, and tough it out. And, you know, this idea that you put three stars together back then, it wasn't like it was the first big three of all time, but, you know, even Boston's big three, which they had put together, um, and some of the other, you know, even the Lakers, you know, where you're using like Lamar Oda maybe as the third, um, it just didn't stack up to this idea of three all NBA level talents in their mid twenties, um, you know, gold medalists, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just seemed scary and mind blowing. And so I guess to me, I was in the camp of, these guys are just going to own the NBA for five years and this is going to probably not be very entertaining by the end of it. You know, I was a little bit resigned to their dominance. I remember when they came through Portland the first couple of times, it was just like, oh my God, especially because LeBron was <laughs> was really hitting that level where like when he hit the open court, you could just forget about it and people would just like jump out of his way and it was almost like a fear factor, an intimidation factor. Uh, and so they felt, uh, you know, somewhat inevitable but I will say their losses were pretty sweet to watch, man. Like that 2011 finals was the first finals I covered. It was so rich in stories. And then the 2014 finals where they just got smoked off the court and, you know, basically self-combusted uh, without the types of injuries that we really saw for, um, you know, Golden State in 2019 where, you know, they kind of go out in a, a blaze of glory as well. I mean, both of those are very, very memorable finals. Some of the most memorable series of the entire uh, decade, uh, kind of for all the wrong reasons, though. Yeah, the 2011 finals in particular, I remember having a bunch of conversations with people just I don't know, playing pickup basketball, asking people who they thought was going to win. And the narrative was like, the Mavericks have no chance because they're a jump shooting team and the Miami Heat are, you know, loaded with guys, most notably Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, who can just kind of burrow their way to the free throw line whenever they want and get to the basket. And that was still the predominant way to look at basketball. So that was really a fascinating kind of uh, narrative that emerged before that series took place. And then after it, what we saw was... LeBron really understanding the need to uh, develop 
his weaknesses. I mean, he needed to get a post game. He needed to get a more dependable outside shot. Uh, and obviously the fire of the finals was not something that he could handle mentally uh, at that point. So, I mean, that series alone is just like so fascinating, even 10 years later. But real quick, like the, the that Miami Heat team, when they first were constructed, I think the big differentiator between them and those other big threes was obviously that it felt like this was the first time a player or players had engineered their own uh, their own destiny and their own free agent movement in a way that those other ones were created more by the front offices and ownership groups and that sort of thing. And this was the first time where it was like the players being like, it doesn't really matter where we end up, we're just going to play together. And I think that that really turned a lot of people off and it was jarring uh, at the time. And now it's just, that's the NBA today. That's <laughs> That's just the world that we live in. Yeah, there's no question. It's a great point to make. Um, The start of the player empowerment era. I wrote about this for my newsletter this week, and I was kind of going back through like all the players who sort of, you know, made their own decisions in the wake of the decision. And it's an incredibly long list. And this is not even um, fully comprehensive, but you had Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, Darren Williams, Dwight Howard, Kevin Durant, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, all in the next basically eight years, move from smaller market franchises to greener pastures, all benefiting from the cover of LeBron being the one who kind of went first and said, you know what, I'm going to be this guy who shakes off, you know, the questions about treason and just kind of does what's in my own personal best interest. The other fascinating thing about their team up was that both he and Wade were legitimate alphas right and Chris Bosch clearly became you know the number three guy like from the start Mm -hmm. he was an alpha in Toronto as well just kind of in a different way but you know we didn't see a lot of uh there's always that pecking order right and eventually it emerged in Miami but that was sort of the major question that a lot of people had the doubters had in 2010 of like you know it's only you know only one person can lead this team only one person can have the ball can these guys play together and to their credit they really showed that they could um Uh, It always bothered me, Michael, even back in 2010, when people were trying to tell free agents what where they should go or where they shouldn't go. I'm glad that we've progressed here over the last 10 years to what I think is a a healthier place as an NBA community, where I think people just accept that these guys are going to, you know, dictate and flex their muscles in these situations. Because, I mean, ultimately, like you know, it's it's not a perfect comparison, but who would want to be stuck? with the same organization for 10, 12 years of their careers, kind of be forced there or kind of guilt-tripped into staying with that uh, you know, same spot if people weren't functioning on a championship level or they weren't able to achieve their goals. I mean, ultimately, um, the, the people who were, I guess, blaming LeBron for not wanting to stay in Cleveland, uh, they, they always bother me. And I just think that we have certainly evolved here over the last 10 decades in, in terms of how we interpret those types of moves. I think so. I, you know, I think the NBA has certainly evolved in that it changed several rules that allowed it. It made it easier for players to retain their stars and pay them more money, which is a direct byproduct of the decision. And then, I mean, but like fundamentally, I still think that when a player leaves a small market, that those fans still to this day feel like really torched and they feel really upset towards whoever. I mean, we're still, you know, it's not as dramatic as it was, but guys are still like burning jerseys and being childish like that. So, well, the thing is though, like 
it's it's one thing if someone like one person is burning a jersey or scattered jerseys mm-hmm. are being burned. I mean, Twitter does an amazing job right now of elevating the lunatics out there. I got to give <laughs> yeah, that platform credit. But I think what's different is when LeBron left Cleveland, and part of it is because he's such a big star, right? But when he goes back for that first game, I mean, you, the, like the visceral anger and like just you know, I don't want to call it hate, but it it kind of was trending that direction was so, uh, you know, so obvious, so clear for people to see on television. And it was like the entire building, you know, it's, it's how everyone felt that collective felt. And, you know, certainly he was pilloried on social media by lots of, uh, you know, writers, columnists, television talking heads. I think now the conversation has moved towards, okay, are these guys making good decisions or bad decisions for their careers? Are they going to be set up to win titles? Is this going to be a good off-court branding move? As opposed to just like saying, you know, you're letting a city down, right? You're a bad person because you're not trying to carry the weight of a specific city. I just think that the nature and the tenor of the conversation has shifted a little bit. For sure. And I I mean, I went back and read a bunch of articles uh, from 2011 and that summer from, I guess it was the summer of 2010, technically. And the word selfish was used so much to describe LeBron James. And I think if you were to... Well, and Dan Gilbert called him a coward, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) That was a whole different can of worms. But I think if you were to read columns today from, say, you know, uh, Kevin Durant's decision to leave Golden State, like the word selfish, I would... I, I, I can't guarantee this, but I don't think that was written by anyone describing the motivations for him choosing to leave Golden State for that reason. So uh, I think that just the shift in the the attitude is really interesting, and it's it's a kind of a breath of fresh air because that's what we need. We don't like. I, I thought that the selfishness that kind of. Uh, that narrative angle was really gross, even when it was happening in real time. And so it's good that kind of people, most people have evolved. Well, and there was a book about LeBron that basically called him a prostitute in the title, you know? And, uh, and I was just I thinking mean, about that. Yeah. Yeah. It got really dark, man. I'm telling like, I don't think we've made that much progress as an American society or as a global society in the last 10 years. Arguably, we've uh, we've descended backwards, given that we're largely locked and confined inside our, our own apartments mm-hmm. at this point of life. But um, I do think that we've become slightly more enlightened in terms of how we talk about athletes. Final quick point on this. Zach, Zach Lowe made it last week on his podcast about the decision. I just want to reiterate it. Um it was an economic boon for the league, for the players, and also for the media. Uh, the league salary cap has almost doubled in the last 10 years. LeBron's salary has almost tripled in the last 10 years. And when you're looking at NBA media coverage in terms of how many people have jobs, how major national outlets staffed these things, um, it was just night and day after that decision. You're seeing you know, like super teams of writers being thrown down in Miami to cover them. Same thing happens when Golden State forms. Same thing happens when LeBron goes to Los Angeles. Um, it was a big deal for the media members and for me specifically. My first uh, national job was at CBS Sports. Months after uh, LeBron, you know, made his decision, the first finals I covered were those 2011 finals. Um, so I just think that it's a it's a major turning point in every aspect of the storytelling of the NBA. Humongous move by LeBron. Humongously influential, uh, and it. it- yeah, it, it basically dictated the next decade of NBA decision-making. My last LeBron question for you, 
uh, quick rapid fire. Mm -hmm. Word of the heat, a disappointment, yes or no? No, not at all. I, I mean, I think one of the worst things LeBron ever did, and people will point to the actual decision as being terrible, and, you know, it wasn't the greatest move ever to go on national television, even though the funds were going to charity. Uh, to go on national no, I mean, I thought it was bad when Gordon Hayward dragged out his decision for seven <laughs> hours and wrote 3,000 words, you know, thanks, Utah, as he's leaving them. Uh, yeah. But LeBron really buried the lead on that TV show, <laughs> you know, and that, and that bothers me. You got to come out of the gate strong, LeBron. Come on. Yeah, and uh, Gordon Hayward doing it on July 4th, nonetheless, and that hitting play the Players' Tribune right before fireworks were about to go off. I remember where I was there. Not too happy. Um, but... Yeah, so I, I think like the the thing that it it's not like it's overshadowed at all, but when he does the the I, I don't even know what to call it, like the I'm gonna call it a parade, but it wasn't a parade, it was like an assembly party uh whatever gathering down in Miami where they unveil the jerseys with Wade and Bosch and he says not one, not two, not three. Um, I think that that moment really, it set an impossible standard and an impossibly high bar that he would had to basically try to live up to from that point forward. So when you eliminate that and then you just look at what they actually did, which was go to four straight finals, win two in a row, I just think like winning one championship is so, so difficult regardless. And to go to four straight, even though the East was not the strongest, I mean, they they survived and endured some serious injuries to Chris Bosh. I mean, those Celtics teams weren't dead at that point. They were still pretty competitive. Uh, and then beating, you know, the young Oklahoma City Thunder that was really talented. And, and they I think they dropped game one of that series as well. So, um yeah, it, 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 I think that they were successful. Winning two out of four, going to four straight finals, that's that's not easy to do. I think that they were not a disappointment in terms of the overall body of work. If you're saying off-court influence, changing the game, being the center of attention, elevating LeBron's personal narrative, doing something that no one else had done before, flipping the power dynamics towards the superstars, as you described, away from the organizations in front offices, they exceeded expectations on mm -hmm. those levels. If you're saying strictly basketball, to me, they were a disappointment, man. If we can rewind and wow. say you have LeBron at 25, <laughs> Dwayne Wade in their mid-20s, Chris Bosh in his mid-20s, and you've got Miami to lure, you know, as a city, as a tax-free haven, to lure your supporting cast... I mean, I was expecting like over under 3.5 titles when they got together. Now, I wasn't doing not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven like LeBron. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason why I view them as uh, uh, as disappointments because they promised eight. Like they went on stage and told us it was going to be eight. All right. Well, you've got a 10 year runway. Show me what you can do with it. The fact that it ended within four years, the fact that it fizzled out so dramatically uh, in 2014, they just got flat out beat by two teams in 2011 and 2014 that were better teams, emphasis on teams, than the Heat's uh, you know, big three in cast. Um, I just think I expected more from them. Now, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, like they're a disappointment, like, you know, they're a bust. I'm not saying that. I just think like... Four finals appearances coming through the Eastern Conference is is impressive. It's not in, that incredible. Try to do it in the West, see what happens. And 
two titles, it was pretty close to one title, right? I mean, it was one shot away from one title. And I do think if Ray Allen doesn't hit that shot, they're viewed in a totally different light, and a lot of this stuff uh, looks different. So kudos to him for doing it. Um, I'm not trying to bag on them. I also think part of the disappointment factor is they're not even the team of the decade. You know, the Golden State Warriors came along right after them and basically beat them at their own game, right? They they have four s- stars instead mm-hmm. of three stars. They win three titles instead of two titles. They go to five finals instead of four finals. Um, they change the way the game is actually played, turning it into a, a three-point game as opposed to like, you know, the, the, the Heat style of play dominating the league for years forward. I just think that the Warriors wound up being more influential on the court specifically. So uh, maybe that helps provide some context. You sound a little shocked when I said disappointment. I yeah I was I mean that's that's harsh Ben come on I like it's I keep it I keep it real especially during the quarantine yeah. Michael I just I, I got to keep it real <laughs> I mean well when you say they were saved by the Ray Allen shot yes I agree ridiculous play that you know if they replay that a hundred times probably doesn't happen ninety nine of them but like they also probably should have won that Maverick series and like. There was there were a few moments in that series. Totally for- disagree. Okay. Totally disagree. Okay, well, it's all on LeBron. Okay. That one was on him, man. <laughs> if he showed up to play, they should have won that series. He did not show up for at least half of that series, and there's a reason why he was hiding in his house for like a month or two after that went down. You know, like that would have stung. I can't imagine how painful that would have been, given all the build up to that series for him. Um, I think they were right, they were rightfully on the wrong side of that one, in my opinion. Okay, well, I, I mean, I forget what game it was. I think it was game three, maybe, where they had the 15-point lead that they blew. Like, there was just some stuff that, you know, uh, like, could have gone another way, and I think that they were still superior in terms of talent, and it's not like they were blown out in a sweep or anything like that. So, and like, yeah, so I, I think everything kind of balances itself out, and winning two out of four is still super impressive, and you are an incredibly large hater right now for thinking that that is not... Also, real real quick, like, the Golden State Warriors are probably the team of the decade, and I think that that's a little more debatable than you're letting on. I don't think that they would have ever existed if it weren't for the Miami Heat, and I don't think that Kevin Durant would have... In, uh, yeah, I don't think he would have had the stones to go to the Golden State Warriors if LeBron stayed in Cleveland his whole career. I agree 1,000%. I put that in my newsletter. Um, you know, Golden State beat Miami at its own game, but they did so playing by the rules that LeBron mm-hmm. set. You yeah. know, there's just kind of no way around that. All right, this is the trick with the Heat, though, Michael. They'll suck you in, and you could yell about the Heat for an hour and a <laughs> half. I mean, it's like, I mean, they, they really made life easy on Talking Heads for about four straight years there, and we're still reaping the benefits today. Let's shift gears, though. I want to know the worst decisions, okay? We can agree, even if they were a disappointment. We can't agree on if they're a disappointment or not, right? Uh, but we can both agree it was a good decision for LeBron. It paid off. He got his rings. He became much more famous. He was able to go back to Cleveland and continue on with his career. Uh, the decision worked out very well, even if the TV show wasn't executed that well. I want to know about some NBA decisions that did not pan out, that blew up in people's faces. Mm-hmm. Maybe that cost people jobs. I want the worst of the worst, Michael. So I tasked you with being the foundational pillar of this list. <laughs> Give me your favorite worst decision. This is not ranked necessarily. I just want to know your favorite worst decision of the last 10 years. Okay, so now I'm going to put on my hater hat. My favorite worst decision, 2017, 
the Sixers trade the third pick in the draft along with a future first round pick that belonged to the Sacramento Kings and was top one protected and eventually became Romeo Langford for Boston's number one overall pick. And that player was basically Markel Fultz for Jason Tatum. It was a colossal screw up by the Philadelphia 76ers. It was a colossal screw up. You know, we didn't know that Fultz would be, you know, he's turned out to be, I think, a serviceable interesting point guard going forward who can still have a very productive career but well way too charitable you're being really nice (laughs) to the guy but continue but uh for the Sixers we know the story was written has been written already uh, in terms of his uh legacy there and uh you know he's no longer there he's at the Orlando Magic so um I just think that this was just a colossal screw up and in the moment even not knowing that Tatum would be better, a lot better than Markel Fultz. Giving up a future first that was go. I mean, it, it eventually was like the fifteenth or fourteenth pick, I believe. But at the time, it was it was projected to be a lot higher than that because it belonged to the Sacramento Kings. So, uh, like giving that up, a, a humongously valuable chip, uh, and giving up Tatum who we'll just assume that they would have taken Tatum at three. A Tatum, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid trio just dominates the NBA for the foreseeable future, and you can't tell me different. And so even... Michael, do you have a tattoo on your body that says, (laughs) Philly doubted my son? I mean, is that really what this boils down to? It's just all of it... All of it's just about the misanalysis on Tatum. Let me ask you this. What was a worse trade involving the Celtics? The Tatum trade or the Nets blockbuster where, you know, they put themselves in the hole for like five straight years by taking on KG and giving up all those draft picks and pick swaps (laughs) and all that stuff. Like, which one was worse? Oh, it's, I mean, the Nets trade is all-time catastrophe, uh, and I mean... Because that, that was my number one for the decade, uh, so yeah. it's great that <laughs> it's great that we're doing a podcast where I pretend to make fun of the Celtics on every episode, and the Celtics won the two biggest ones on our list. Fantastic. <laughs> great. Great for me. Yeah, and I'm not really done, just, I, I want to get more specific and dig into this, just for, so please oblige me for another couple minutes here, Ben, but... So they take the Celtics get Jason Tatum, they get the pick, and then that year, uh, the two teams, the Sixers and the Celtics, face off in the second round. And I just want to read off some of Jason Tatum's stats in that playoff series, which the Celtics won in five games. Uh, he's a 19-year-old rookie. He averaged 23.6 points on 53% shooting, seven and a half free throw attempts per game. He was plus 34 in a series where three games were decided by five or fewer points. Uh, it's like, I mean, I don't really know where to go, uh, from there. And that was obviously his rookie season. They lose in seven in the conference finals and Tatum is an all-star a couple of years later. And, you know, he has, uh, MVP, uh, aspirations that are legitimate. So for the Sixers, it's like, you're still in decent shape. You still have Embiid. You still have Simmons. You have Tobias Harris. You have, uh, I guess, Al Horford. uh, And you're an intriguing team that a lot of people thought could have gone to the finals this season. And maybe you will go to the finals this year. We don't know. But the future, the alternative future where you take Tatum and you still have that other pick 
is just it's really scary to think about what the Sixers could have been uh, relative to what they are and where they are right now. For sure. And let me just pour a little bit more salt in the wound. I mean, <laughs> you also have to keep in mind they only got 33 games total out of Markel Fultz. So whatever he com- becomes in Orlando is now irrelevant because they already gave up on him. They didn't have the right. stomach to see the development project through. So that further just buries that decision. Also, you can do the transitive property and say, well, like, what did they trade Fultz for if they, you know, like if they gave up Tatum to get Fultz, what did they wind up getting for Fultz? That trade in 2019 was <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Simmons, a second round pick, and a top 20 protected first round pick. So, Michael, let me put it to you. If Orlando had offered Jonathan Simmons a 2019 second round pick and a, a top 20 first round pick for Tatum in 2019, would you have said yes or no? I would have to turn that one down, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my professional advice. And on top of that, uh, Philly gave up the extra first round pick, as we keep mentioning. So yeah, that was a, a pretty terrible decision. It's kind of amazing that that team hasn't exploded yet, given all these mistakes that they've kind of made along the way. Um, but that certainly is one you know very, uh, very near the top of the list. All right, what other worst decisions do you have? So I mean, next up, I just want to quickly skim over the summer of 2016 with you. And I, we, I, we don't need to go deep on all these contracts, but... Oh, yeah. There's a there's a top <laughs> 10 of bad decisions on overpays from that summer alone, right? Because that's the cap spike summer where the yes. new TV money kicks in. Um, the Warriors are able to get KD, which everybody gets blinded by. And then all over the league, uh, GMs were making it rain for the Jan Mahinmis of the world. Most of these GMs are currently out of a job for a good reason. Uh, so... Evan Turner, $70 million after uh, playing in Boston as basically their backup point guard and making $3 million a year. Uh, Solomon Hill to the Pelicans for $52 million after he failed to average five points per game in his last season with the Indiana Pacers. Uh, Harrison Barnes, who's obviously a key player on uh, that Golden State team, but of course was also kind of viewed as... Uh, symbolically the reason that they lost <laughs> and he gets 94 million dollars from the Dallas Mavericks uh Luol- yeah that that summer when they went from Harrison Barnes to um Kevin Durant I think I compared it tri- a tricycle <laughs> to a Ferrari so that's just the context you need that Mark Cuban paid max money basically yeah, for a tricycle exactly uh that's a great analogy uh my favorite just craptacular uh signing was actually two signings by the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, they gave a combined $136 million to Luol Deng and Timothy Mozgov, and neither would have a significant or meaningful play, let alone moment, let alone memory in a Lakers jersey. Uh, and uh, one my my favorite memory about that is they happened right at the start oh, of free exactly, agency with yeah, Mozgov. Yeah, those are the yeah. first two announced, yeah. And so I was always grading these deals in real time. And you never want to come straight out of the gate with an F because like it could always get worse, right? That's what you think. And I think I gave the Mozgov one maybe like a C minus or a D. I was like unusually charitable because I was thinking, well, like, you know, this is going to be a crazy summer. We all know the cap spike. There's going to be just insane numbers out there and everything else. I remember getting so much hate from my fellow like dork bloggers of the world 
Um, I remember Danny LaRue <laughs> just needling me. He's like, what are you talking about? This is a horrible deal. Um, so other people realized quite how bad that one was before I did. Yeah, it was uh, atrocious. Um, and then my, my other favorite terrible move was Jan Mahinmi, uh, a center getting paid $64 million by the Washington Wizards who already had Marcin Gortat, a center. So that one just, and this was like, as the league was, we knew about small ball, like the death lineup was already a thing. So to, to, to make that move was just like, I don't really know what was going on there. And there has been no explanation given to me uh, since that makes any sense. So those were just like the fav- my favorites that, uh, that I wrote down that just like really, really bad decisions across the board. Well, the one about the changing NBA, it's a great point. I want to underscore it with one of my favorite worst decisions of the decade is actually from that same summer. And it lines up very similar with what you're saying about, you know, how are you not reading the tea leaves? How do you not see where the NBA is going? And there was just a lag factor. Some teams got it. The smart teams got it quickly and they wanted to play copycat with the Warriors. And the the less smart teams took two or three years to kind of figure out, oh, yeah, like we're not even going to be able to play you know, centers who are just strictly shot blocking guys if they can't move, they mm-hmm. can't shoot, and they can't do anything else, right? On my list for the worst decisions has to be the 2016 NBA draft by the Phoenix Suns. To take <laughs> Dr- Dragon Bender at four and then get Marquise Chris at eight where those guys basically give you nothing. So it's not just you're messing up <laughs> one draft pick, Right. Everybody blows a draft pick. It happens. But to mess up two in the top eight in the same year, and look, if there was like no good players below them, right, I wouldn't I wouldn't be making quite as much fun of them. But they could have had Jamal Murray, right? Mm-hmm. They could have had DeMontis Sabonis. They could have had even a Malik Beasley. They could have had a Karis LeVert. Maybe that's not the best pick with his injuries and stuff along the way. They could have had the crown jewel, Pascal Siakam. I mean, can you imagine Phoenix if they had Jamal Murray and Pascal Siakam instead of Dragon Bender uh, and Marquise Chris? And what killed me about those moves is like both Bender and Chris didn't have a position. There was major question marks about both of them. It almost seemed like they took both of them just knowing that one would flame (laughs) out and hoping that the other one wouldn't, right? They're kind of positionally conflicting. Um, and it was just like the ultimate like swing for the fences twice draft praying someone's going to pan out. And it was exactly the wrong situation to do it in because they didn't have enough structure. They didn't have enough ball handling, playmaking and all that kind of stuff. They had major other needs on that roster. Um, and then they wind up like not very long after that needing to take DeAndre Ayton anyways because uh, they never found their their answer for the future in the middle. So to me, for very similar reasons as what you're describing about some of those centers getting paid in free agency, we have to put the Suns 2016 draft on this list. That's a great call. Uh, comically atrocious decision-making right there uh, across the board, even though I think, if I recall correctly, I wanted the Celtics to take Dragon Bender instead of Jalen Brown, which is like my all-time faux pas. I hate admitting it, but I'm an honest person, so I'm going to say it out loud on the pod. But yeah, that would have been a, a catastrophic decision. Yeah, it wouldn't have been great. No. But at the same time, 
Dragon Bender could probably play in the NBA if he got drafted to Boston. So that's part of the deal too. Like, unfortunately, some of these uh, teams, it's like your bad decisions are compounded by your lack of culture and developmental, um, you know, petri dish and everything else. Um, I think if you put Jalen Brown in Phoenix, his career might go a little bit differently than it has so far. You know, it's just uh, you know, kind of the breaks that you get, uh, you know, between the haves and the have-nots in the NBA. All right, give me some more of your worst decisions. Okay, Ben. Uh, this one is a little, I think it's overlooked, happened a while ago. Um, And, you know, if you look at kind of the legacy of it and its tale, I think the NBA would just be so different today if it never happened. But the uh, Los Angeles Clippers in 2011 trading uh, Baron Davis and an unprotected first round pick to the Cleveland Cavaliers for Mo Williams and Jamario Moon, uh, that unprotected first round pick became Kyrie Irving for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And at the time, the Clippers were uh, 21 and 37 when they made this deal. They had Blake Griffin, they had Eric Bledsoe, they had Eric Gordon, they had DeAndre Jordan. They were young, they were up and coming. Uh, to give up a, a an unprotected first round pick when you're a bad team uh, and you're rebuilding to get Mo Williams, someone who you would eventually jettison in a four team trade uh, to get Lamar Odom. Uh, it's just, it's like that one we don't talk about enough. And I think a big reason why is because the Clippers just like immediately got Chris Paul and everything was fine. And they, they were able to kind of recast themselves and become what they are today, nine years later, which is arguably the best team in the NBA with two superstars. But imagine them winning the lottery here. They get Kyrie to go with Blake Griffin. Uh, you know, Eric Bledsoe, Eric Gordon, all those names that I mentioned before, plus the flexibility that comes moving forward with those pieces as trade assets. I just think like that trade, that's a really, really bad, bad, bad decision (laughs) by the Clippers. Well, sometimes not having fans works to your benefit, you know, like scaring your entire fan base away Mm -hmm. with like 20 years of ineptitude can actually come back to help you because had like say the Sixers done that exact same trade, right? Like what would be the Twitter volume of anger around it, you know, trading the unprotected number one compared to what the Twitter volume was for the Clippers at that time? I think it's a fair comparison to make. Um, You're right. They did, you know, kind of build themselves out of the sand trap very well. Let me ask you, was that the worst trade involving Kyrie Irving though? I mean, don't forget 2017 Cleveland sends Kyrie Irving to Boston for Jay Crowder, and an injured Isaiah Thomas, uh, Zizek, a first-round pick mm-hmm. that wound up being Colin Sexton, and then a second-round pick. Um, no, obviously. At the time, <laughs> I, I, well, let me let me sure. just say this. At the time, I predicted like a month before that trade happened those exact terms minus Zizek. Um, I thought it made sense if if Isaiah was healthy as a stopgap, you know, just trying to give you know, mm-hmm. LeBron an extra wing defender and another playmaker and, and kind of let him do his thing before, you know, he rides off into the sunset to L.A. Um, in hindsight, though, if you're saying, are you just trying to do the best possible trade for the organization, given where Kyrie's value was at at that point of his career and, you know, far fewer red flags about his personality than exist today, they Probably should have done it better than that, right? Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair to the Clipper, I mean, sorry, to the Cavs, uh, you have 
obviously you don't know how bad Isaiah Thomas's hip is, and he's coming off one of the 10 best offensive seasons in NBA history. Uh, granted, he needs a payday. And you also don't know exactly where that uh, Nets pick that the Celtics included is going to land. So I think it was eight overall, and they get Colin Sexton, so they don't really get what they probably hoped they would, which is, I mean, the Nets were terrible for years, and the Celtics, uh, you know, they got the first overall pick from that bounty. They got the third overall pick with Jalen. Um so they were probably thinking that pick was going to be a little bit higher, and then the Nets kind of exceeded, I guess, their own internal expectations. So, I mean, I'm trying to, like, defend this, and I struggle to, <laughs> I struggle to because you're also ostensibly trying, I would imagine, even though LeBron is putting out feelers that he's leaving, you're trying to keep the guy around. That should be the main motivation oh, of your organization. Sure. So you're not doing that by trading away... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Kyrie, who is who's helped you win a title and getting back pieces that just don't work. And then you have to make a midseason trade to bring in Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance. And it's just like a total catastrophe and mess. Look, we're going to run the whole gamut here, Michael, of bad decisions. Some that were logical when they were made, some that were illogical when they were made. I definitely think that if you have, uh, you know, a sound defense for what you did and it just blew up in your face, you probably don't get crushed by history mm-hmm. quite as much as you do if you're just drafting Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris, right? Um, and just like, ah, we're throwing darts at the board, see what happens. Um, but I do think, like, when you look back on how little value they extracted, like, I think it's fair to Monday morning quarterback what, that one. And let me be clear, I was all in with that trade idea. I thought it was a good idea. And actually, you know, this is embarrassing to admit, but I was actually could see Brooklyn's logic on the Paul Pierce Kevin Garnett trade. I was like, well, they got to be relevant. They're moving to a building. They got to do something big and splashy. They got the money to spend it. You know, those those future picks aren't going to be that great because they're going to be a good team. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that was obviously terrible logic as it turned out, in part because Darren Williams just completely fell off a cliff as a player. Um, but uh, you know, we can say a, a decision is bad, even if we agreed with it at the beginning, just based on how it panned out. Uh, you know, it's it's probably a little bit more intellectually honest to admit when you were you got it wrong, just like the team did. And I'm trying to do that here at, at various points. But the Kyrie one, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to get 50 games of a broken down Isaiah Thomas, not even that Crowder, who didn't look nearly as good after he left Boston. And then Colin Sexton, where that's to me, that, to me, that's just a tough watch every night. Um, <laughs> I, that That's that's pretty rough. Uh, yeah, and I agree with you. And what's really funny about this trade is that if you were to ask uh, just like casual Celtics fans or also diehard Celtics fans who don't watch the rest of the NBA about this trade, they would say that the Celtic, it was the worst trade in Celtics history because that is how much distaste they have for Kyrie Irving, which is pretty funny. Um, Everybody lost. Perfect. Exactly. Uh, real quick before I move on to my next horrible decision from the last 10 years, uh, I just want two quick funny to mention two quick funny uh, tidbits from that uh, Baron Davis Clippers trade. Um, Chris Kamen, uh, he was in the middle of his eighth year in the NBA and he had he made the all-star team the previous season. Uh, after this trade was announced, he told reporters that he did not know that players could get traded in the middle of the season. Uh, which is just, I, I was laughing to myself when I read that. Um, and then there's this great... Yeah, he, he probably came to find that out 
on multiple occasions, didn't he? I feel like he was pretty well traveled, right? Yeah, he's well. The, ironically, the next year, I think he was traded to the Hornets in the the Chris Paul trade. Um, but uh, as I digress, the, uh, the Mo Williams had a very funny quote um, uh, when the he was announced with Jamario Moon to the Los Angeles media. I appreciate the Clippers for keeping my marriage together, was the quote, and it was because apparently his wife despised Cleveland. So uh, that was very funny as well. Um, so I'm just going <laughs> to just wanted to throw those well, in there. No, we're all there with Mrs. Moon, right? I mean, we can all we can all see what she's seeing. Yes. Uh, and so moving on to a couple other uh, terrible trades, or I should say decisions that just they coincidentally happen to be trades. Um, Kawhi Leonard, uh, I have him down here. I have him involved in two bad decisions. And I guess the first one is just how he entered the league, where the Pacers trade the 15th overall pick, which was Kawhi, to uh, the San Antonio Spurs for George Hill. Uh, who was a 20... 20- yeah, so that's that's a perfect example of what I was talking yeah. about, where there was a logic behind what they were doing. They got a benefit. They extracted a benefit from having George Hill with that group. They needed that position filled. They were ready to win kind of at that moment. Um, you know, it, it didn't look terrible for the first couple of years, but then as uh, history snowballed, <laughs> Indiana looked like it got definitely a short end of the stick. Yeah, after uh, Kawhi's first finals MVP, I think they were having buyer's remorse there, or trader's remorse, whatever you want to call it. But, like, uh, Larry Bird, who was making the decisions at the time for Indiana, said repeatedly that he wanted to acquire veterans who could impact the team right away, but they were also kind of like... They weren't rebuilding at the time, but they just drafted Paul George. They went on to sign uh, uh, David West, I believe, a couple months later. So they were like trying to win. It was clear. And so I understand that. But it was just like, why did you really have to go that route? It's uh, And real quick, um, I just want to mention a headline from a local uh, indie paper when the trade was announced. Uh, Pacers trade drafted player to San Antonio for former IUPUI star George Hill. And obviously, the drafted player was Kawhi Leonard. Very funny. That's like when you when you forget to update the headline when you before you hit publish. You know, you just have yeah. like the like the block text in there, just like saving your spot. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Um, again, though, Michael, this wasn't even the worst trade involving Kawhi Leonard. No, it wasn't. And before I go to that other one, a lot of people don't know, but Davis Bertans was involved in this trade as well. So the Pacers lost. Oh, Davis Bertans, who they drafted. Uh, I guess the Spurs would have taken that pick and made the selection, but still, like, Davis Bertans, who's now about to get just a boatload of money, and he's one of the best shooters in the world. It's just a it's a real gut punch for the Pacers organization. Yeah, that's just insult to injury. But, I mean, look, bottom line, the Kawhi trade that really matters mm-hmm. was the one that turned the Raptors from a playoff laughingstock into the world champions. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, money was involved. San Antonio seemed like they thought their back was against the wall. They were trying to get out in front of a possible you know, departure in free agency. The terms coming back to San Antonio never really made that much sense. It seemed like they were trying to prioritize respectability and you know, keeping a guy like LaMarcus Aldridge happy maybe rather than you know, heading towards a, a rebuild. Maybe it was just that they wanted to try to maintain a winning culture and then just figure it out down the road. Whatever it was, 
uh, I mean, this trade, to me, it looks worse month by month uh, the further you go, even though Toronto only got a year out of Kawhi. Yeah, and I mean, it's an obvious win for the Raptors, and I, like, won't stand for any argument. The other, I mean, the whole point is to win the title, and they won the title, so even though he leaves to go to Los Angeles, and you knew before you made the trade, you know, and talking to anyone around the league, they everybody knew he was going to sign with either the Clippers or the Lakers. He was going to Los Angeles. Uh, Masai Ujiri obviously did not care, and it paid off, and that's why he's a total stud. Um, what I just, I just, I was con- kind of confused in the moment. I mean, I, I, we all didn't know what Kawhi Leonard would look like physically. He basically missed the previous season with this mysterious thigh injury off and on, and I mean that gave us the dawn of load management to a su- true superstar that we're in right now in that era of just uncertainty night to night. But, like, to get, I mean, to extract, like, DeMar DeRozan and Jakob Pertl, uh and a top 20 protected first-round pick, I just, I never really understood it. You kind of laid out the rationale from the Spurs' perspective really well, I thought, and I think Greg Popovich did not want to take a step back, understandably, and they already have Lamar, Marcus Aldridge, and you want to win right away. But at the same time, like if you're gonna make a trade like this, you gotta get OG Ananobi, you gotta get Pascal Siakam, you gotta get someone who's a blue chipper, and there was never that possibility in this package. Yeah, it just seemed like they tried to talk themselves into DeRozan, just like the Raptors fans they tried to talk themselves into Rosen. They just wanted it to happen, and that's just not quite who he is. I think that they've been really tough to watch these last couple of years, you know, because yep. it does feel like they're just buying time and and waiting for their next chapter, and it never really made sense. Michael, I have um, an outside-the-box thought, though. I'm not even sure this is the best trade that Masai Ujiri made. I think <laughs> that it's possible. Okay. I think it's possible that the Andrea Bargnani trade with the Knicks is actually better than the Kawhi Leonard trade with the San Antonio Spurs. So just to recap, yes. <laughs> New York traded Marcus Camby, Steve Novak, Quentin Richardson, a 2016 first-round pick, and two second-round picks for Andrea Bargnani. And I cannot stress this enough for our younger listeners. Bargnani was unbelievably bad at basketball. I mean, just absolutely horrible at basketball. Now, he had some box score stats. He had a few skills here and there. But by this point of his career, all the advanced stats had revealed him to be like basically actively damaging to his teams because he was arguably the worst defensive player in the entire league (laughs) who was like playing lots of minutes. And he also was kind of a finesse offensive player who couldn't hit three-pointers, right? So he was taking all the wrong kinds of shots. He wasn't super efficient. He took a lot of shots because he had been a number one overall pick, so he felt kind of emboldened to take a lot of those shots. But he was just one of those guys where, like, okay, you know, he might average twenty points in a season, but like, you know, the you know the real plus minus or the on court off court, all that kind of stuff, just says you don't want this guy on the court if you're trying to win basketball games. And so it seemed like at that point he was going to be sort of a salary dump. At least that's what you would have expected. And instead, New York gives all these draft picks trying to talk themselves that he's going to be like the X factor to push them over the hump. The deal made literally <laughs> my no sense. Like my head spun when they did it. I couldn't believe it. I'm sure I gave Messiah an A plus on the terms. I can't remember exactly. Um, and ultimately, like 
New York, it was a pretty straight crash down. I think they got, I'm looking right now at his box line, they got two seasons out of him. Um, you know, basically, you know, 13 points, five rebounds. I mean, just really rough to watch. And uh, part of the problem was just like his commitment, like his heart, mm-hmm. you know? Does this guy really want to play? You know, you hear all these players, oh, the mecca of basketball, Madison Square Garden. I can't wait to go play there. I mean, Bargnani, it just kind of felt like the exact opposite of that. It's like, oh, God, I got to go play in front of Spike again tonight. I hope everybody doesn't realize how bad I am. I don't know. It just, the whole experience was tough. The Bargnani New York Knicks experience can be summed up in one of my all-time favorite gifts where he tries to basically take off from the free throw line and dunk on I forget who and instead just falls about 20 feet short and gets called for a charge and uh it is just so comical i mean the guy is i mean there were a lot of you talked to like several of his former coaches like his heart was just never in it and uh had a lot of talent isn't it's not easy being a number one overall pick but uh yeah it's uh it was a tragic move for sure okay uh gun to your head Barnani trade or Kawhi trade? Which was uh, which was the worst decision? The Spurs Kawhi trade or the Knicks Barnani trade? You know, maybe this is just recency bias, but I just have a really hard time coming to terms with what the Spurs got back when you trade someone who's supposed to be your franchise player for the next six, seven, eight, nine years, and you don't get back someone or an asset that can give you some semblance of that production. So I, I got to go with that move. And honestly, like, you look at what Brandon Ingram has become, and I know that they didn't want to move Kawhi to the Lakers to for a variety of reasons. But if you get someone like Ingram, at least you have a new franchise player that you can build around. And they just they just didn't get anything like that. So I got to go with that move. I, I feel you. I feel you. I was being a little hot takey with the other one. I mean, the stakes are so much higher when you're getting a Finals MVP and a yeah. guy who takes down like multiple major rivals. Yeah. But I but we do need to show a lot of respect. I actually think should they give Masai another ring for the Barnani trade? Would that be <laughs> out of line? Just give him like matching rings, one for each hand. All right, what else do you got, Michael? I mean, I feel like right now might be a good time to just mention the Harden trade, right? Like, do you, I mean, do, we've both probably talked about this and written about this ad nauseum over the past seven or eight years since it, it happened. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, uh, I guess, why it was bad? <laughs> Well, it was another one where I actually defended it at the time more than most people. I thought the logic of the return package was well constructed. I mean, you know, replacing some of what Harden did with Kevin Martin's skill set with banking, uh, you know, the future draft picks. Uh, you know, to me, it's, I just put myself in Sam Presti's position and was like, well, if ownership tells you you just can't spend the money that you need to spend and you realize Harden's going to be. Uh, a major, major star who's not going to be comfortable in the role that he works best in for your organization. There is some logic behind trading him, but you know, ultimately, like it didn't quite pan out. Had they won the title with Kevin Martin there that season, I think people would give them a much more of a pass for that trade. I do think there's been a little bit of a pile on uh, effect for them. 
Uh, but I think all the criticism goes towards ownership's decision not to pay Harden mm-hmm. rather than the trade itself. So if the worst decision of the decade was uh, you know, getting cheap on James Harden in Oklahoma City, I think that that absolutely deserves to be on the list. What, can I ask you, what did you think that James Harden was at the time and could be? Did you, like, what, how good did you think he, did you know he would, or uh, like, obviously he's going to go to the Hall of Fame. Like, was that even on, in your mind at all as a possibility? Or like, just where were you with him? I could see regular All Star. Um, just because of how good he was with the ball in his hands and like just the burst scoring that he could show at times. But he, the minutes that he got his first couple of seasons, like he was not playing that much. So I think that uh, people remember like his first breakout week in Houston of being like, oh my God, look at this guy. Because remember yeah. he just like oh, scored yeah. like, I don't know, 30, 40 points like right out of the gate. And I think everybody hopped on this idea. Oh yeah, he's going to be a, a perennial all-star down the road. But even a couple of years into his Houston tenure, I wasn't convinced he was going to be an MVP level player necessarily. I mean, there was just so many other guys in that same age range who were so good. Mm-hmm. He was really bad defensively. I remember <laughs> talking to uh, opposing coaches who just like, I mean, they gleamed when they could talk about picking on him during postseason matchups. I know the Blazers at one point ran the same play four times in a row and got four layups. <laughs> Uh, in a playoff game, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by picking on James Harden. Uh, that could actually, maybe that's like a late season game before the playoffs. Um, but, you know, needless to say, I mean, this this guy was just in a different spot earlier in his career, but you could see the, mm-hmm. the all-star potential. I mean, he was taken very high in the draft order. He had a, a very rare combination of ball handling, shooting, and shot creation. I mean, those skills are are very valuable, but also... We learned that as the NBA evolved, you know, three or four or five years after that trade, his particular skills became even more valuable relative to all the other kinds of skills out there, right? Right. And I think, obviously, his organization and the team he ended up on helped facilitate that. And I just remember seeing him pass uh, kind of as like the, I guess it was like their backup primary ball handler. Uh, in 2012, I guess it would be. And I mean, that conference finals against the Spurs was just incredible. And I thought his, his greatest attribute was as a playmaker and just a creative like genius with the basketball. So I didn't foresee necessarily him being this guy who could average 37 a night, but yeah, he was. Uh, I, I thought I, I recognized that it was a mistake in the moment, and just a huge boon for the Houston Rockets. Um, shall I uh, bless you with another one, Ben? Yes, but I'm getting a little bit nervous. We've gone for almost an hour, and I don't think there's been a single mention of Vlade Diva. Can you um, can you address that, or should I? <laughs> Why don't you go ahead right now? I mean, there's a lot to pick from. I think. I mean, the funniest decision would probably be the Papianis pick just re- I mean I just remember everyone falling out of their chairs when I think I was doing a live show when he made that pick maybe uh you know a draft commentary show everybody's scrambling to like look up who this guy is or where is he on other people's boards some people really haven't heard of him mm-hmm. I mean it was just like a very uh, disorienting moment I think the one that people look back to was probably the the Stauskas trade where basically the Kings get almost nothing in return and, and trade out Carl Landry, Nick Stauskas, Jason Thompson, and they part with an unprotected first round <laughs> pick and a pick swap just oh, to kind man. of clear cap yeah. space. 
And then I believe they went on to spend that cap space on Rajon Rondo, who, like, at that point, I was already 1,000% out on Rondo. Um, Your mistake. Bellinelli. No, not at all. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Bellinelli, who, you know, he, he is who he is, but he's not going to change a losing program. You know, he's just not that guy. And then Costa Kufis, where they already had some, like, you know, interior, um, you know, there wasn't a ton of minutes for him available at that time. Just a perplexing move. It was one of those things where you wondered if someone had ever explained the rules of trades to Vlade before he made it, like if or he just got completely talked into it, suckered into it. I know that the Sixers fans, you know, really celebrated this like their Super Bowl for a couple years. Uh, but I think in hindsight, in terms of just like pure asset management and strategic planning and everything else, that's a pretty rough one. That is an all-timer. That is like a just 101, you do not trade unprotected draft picks to clear cap space uh, lesson, I guess. Uh, And yeah, it was, I remember it was just like laughable in the moment and so perplexing. Uh, Yeah, Vladi, we could have done a whole Vladi episode, to be honest. So that's why I kind of, I cut him some slack and I didn't really invest too much time in my research on him. And just the legendary moves that he has made with the Sacramento Kings. Um, hey, in hindsight and in defense of him, uh-huh. did he wind up actually winning the Demarcus Cousins trade? So I'm looking at these terms right now: Demarcus Cousins and Omri Caspi for Buddy Heald, Tyreek Evans, Langston Galloway, a, a 2017 first round pick, and a 2017 second round pick. Now, granted, he basically squandered <laughs> all of the picks. Langston Galloway, whatever, Tyreek Evans, you know, he wasn't there for uh, very long. But he did get Buddy Heald out of it and the right to pay Buddy Heald's current contract. I guess the question is, do you even want to pay Buddy Heald? Because otherwise you could just argue that, you know, if Cousins winds up being almost like negative value after that trade because of all the injuries. I don't know. Maybe they dodged a bullet by not having to pay Cousins and then walked right into another bullet and having to pay Buddy Heald. I don't know. It seems like they may be one at that. Well, I mean, they paid Buddy Heald, and now they'll probably have to trade him, I think, at some point because they want to pay Bogdan Bogdanovich. Uh, We should also mention that he didn't draft Luka, which is probably... That's got to be number one with a bullet here with his mistakes, right? So I was going to ask you that. That's a great one. It is... What's worse taking Aiton over Luca or Bagley over Luca? Mm, that's a really good question. Because it, it's or trading Trey for Luca. I mean that's you you could also do that one because uh no, Luca's definitely I I can't do I can't include Trey there. Just because I think Trey is such a stud and Atlanta, you know, they got a pick for that. We'll see what happens with Cam Reddish and whatever. Like I, I think that that is fine. I'm okay with that one. If I was a Hawks fan, I wouldn't cry myself to sleep every night. If I was a Suns fan, I'm still in a bet I'm in pretty good shape. If I'm like a Kings fan and I'm thinking about it, like De'Aaron Fox and Luka Doncic on the same team. I just would love to see how that looked and give that a chance for a few seasons. And maybe it doesn't work, and maybe you got to trade one of them, and that would mean you trade De'Aaron Fox, and you're, you're going to get a boatload for him because he's incredible. But, like, you got to take the best player available, and that was so obviously Luka Doncic. That's what I'm saying, Michael. It's not about, oh, I want to see what it looks like. Do you, want, you know what I want to see? 
77 <laughs> in front of my home crowd. That's what I want to see. Luka Doncic. I mean, look what he's doing to Dallas. Turning them around, got their fan base engaged. Yeah. I mean, you're selling him to every single season ticket holder. He's on every little promotional item, his face, his jerseys everywhere in Dallas. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. I mean, franchises kill to get those kinds of franchise-level mm-hmm. talents. They're basically impossible to get. They had one staring right at them, and it doesn't even seem like they, they really considered it that much. Originally, I kind of faulted Phoenix more for taking Aiton, in part because they had Lucas coach, and it's like, come on, bro. Like He should be able to tell you exactly how good Lucas is going to be, and if you're going to just go with the hometown guy over uh, the perfect fit for your coach, then... I don't know what to tell you. That seems like bad organization. But the longer that I think about it, I mean, these decisions should get easier the further down the board you go Mm -hmm. because the talent is getting worse the further you go. And for Sacramento to need a franchise player forever to realize what happens if you get kind of the wrong franchise player in Cousins, and here's Luca staring right at you and you go a different direction for another big after like seven years of bigs who haven't worked out for you in the lottery. um, I think that one's worse. You're right. Yeah, this is really getting depressing. Um, so oh, this is why we do it. This is for the love of the game. <laughs> for the hate of the decisions, for the love of the game, Michael. Keep them coming. Okay, so this one is just really personal, and I'm going to guarantee that no one else has it on their, their worst decisions big board. I've said it before, uh, and I've felt it in my heart ever since. The... This is Boston Celtics related, if I wasn't telegraphing that enough. The Celtics' decision uh, to draft Kelly Olenek instead of Giannis Antetokounmpo, I just don't think I'll ever, like, I'll never just understand or get over it. And for those who uh, aren't really aware of the entire backstory, the Celtics had just traded Doc Rivers to the Los Angeles Clippers for a first-round pick. They just hired Brad Stevens, or were about to hire him. Uh, they were rebuilding. This was They knew they were going to be bad for the foreseeable future. They traded up to get Kelly Olenek, the 13th overall pick. Um, you knew that Kelly Olenek, who I think was 22 when they drafted him, you knew what the ceiling was. You knew the skill set. You knew he was going to be a big who could shoot, and that was really valuable. But And he was super efficient at Gonzaga. But at the same time, you knew that there was a ceiling. You knew defensively there were warts. Uh, you knew that the league was changing. And you know if you wanted to go small, what was his role going to be? And so if you're like just fundamentally as a philosophy in drafting, I'm not saying they should have known, the Celtics should have known that Giannis was going to be a multiple-time MVP and this transcendent phenom who would kind of revolutionize basketball in his own way. But you know that he's just really unquantifiable and you know that physically he's going to be something different and you don't really even know how to project what he's going to be. So, like, just why not take a flyer on him? It, it just, it really, if you look at it from that perspective, it never really made a ton of sense to me. I, am I, like, being too harsh here? Because a lot of other teams passed on Giannis as well. He was taken 15th overall. But, like, I just feel like, philosophically, the Boston Celtics should have been aligned with taking a player like that. Well, it's so interesting because, like, Danny just, like, sweated KD, right? And, like, so much of what he loved about KD was 
kind of the form breaking, mm-hmm. you know, score. Like he's so long, he's this incredible scorer, but also just like the dedication to the sport. I mean, like everybody knows Danny's this crazy competitor, multiple sport athlete coming up as a high school player and everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's like of all the traits that Katie and Giannis share, um, certainly personal weight training program would probably not be on that list, right? I mean, Giannis mm-hmm. is a, a little bit more jacked, I would say, but the the utter devotion to the game, right? And just like, you know, willing to try to improve, constantly be in the gym. I mean, the story's about Katie always sleeping at the Sleep Pleasant uh, Recreation Center in between games so he could play more often, didn't have to go home to sleep. And Giannis working his way up through, uh, you know, the Greek minor leagues and just like, you know, being completely obsessed with trying to get better. Um, that's the, the trait they shared. It's the exact trait you think would like magnetize Danny Ainge to Giannis. And it just, uh, it didn't play out that way. But Michael, I mean, this is not even close to the worst decision in that famed 2013 draft (laughs) michael and we don't have to go past the number one spot to find it no we don't uh did the did the cleveland cavaliers think that anthony bennett was zion williamson is that what happened is that what they were expecting uh when they drafted that number one pick of just like this big athletic you know, the, the next Larry Johnson, the next Charles Barkley, like what was their vision? Because I'm looking right now on career win shares and we were talking about like, <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about Bargnani level advanced stats and like love for the game, do you remember the clips that would circulate of Anthony Bennett just like wandering around during the half court offense, like not even paying attention to the game that was going on? It was almost like he was holding a one man like protest or like strike during the game. Um, that happened when he was in Cleveland, but his career win shares 0.5 cumulative career, career win shares. And if you guys aren't stat nerds, just realize Giannis has 63 of them. So he's 126 times better than, uh, <laughs> the, the, num- the number one pick in that draft. And if you're also saying, okay, well, where does that fare? There was 51 players selected in that draft who've played at least one NBA minute. Anthony Bennett ranks 39th in career win shares out of the 51. And there's only one other guy taken in the first round, uh, the 30th pick, Nemanja Nedovic, who has fewer career win shares than Anthony Bennett. So basically anyone else taken with the first 29 picks would have been an improvement over Anthony Bennett. That's really hard to do, barring a crazy career-altering injury to get that pick that bad. I mean, that's that's in the conversation for the worst draft pick ever and the worst decision of the decade isn't it's it? it's really bad yeah i mean it's it's an all-time bust uh oladipo goes next he becomes this all-star all-nba player um you know what i'm gonna do i'm just gonna start reading some of the players in this draft who have more career win shares than anthony oh, bennett geez. okay and we're gonna see how many you can make it through without laughing okay archie goodwin Ray McCallum. Okay, yeah, I'm done. I can't. I can't. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Kelly, Isaiah Kanan, Shane Larkin. Wasn't he a Celtics legend at one point? Oh, le- absolute uh, Be- legend, yeah. Bebe Naguera, remember him? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, another Portland uh, Portland Hall of Famer, Jeff Withey. Actually, I think they traded him. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams, Shabazz Muhammad. Haven't heard that name in a while. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mike Muscala is blowing him out of the water. I mean, Tony Snell looks like a freaking all-star compared to uh, com- compared to our guy, Anthony Bennett. Uh, worst decision of the decade. Was that the one? 
that's not worst for me well i mean like do you remember right before this draft how like down on it everybody was i mean there are some really interesting names that have come from it oh rightfully so i mean look number number three otto porter number four cody zeller number five alex yeah another home run from phoenix number six nerland's noel number seven ben mclemore number eight contavious caldwell pope number nine trey burke i mean all those guys i don't know if you want to call them bust but they're not none of those guys are great you know and certainly like for otto porter when you factor in his contract that's pretty rough um I don't know if that excuses you for taking Anthony Bennett. People thought Anthony Bennett was going to be like 8 to 12, right? Yeah. I mean, they swung <laughs> and they missed a really bad. And I mean, this was this is an organization that was really like lost in the wilderness at the time, and it's really amazing that they made this pick and still were able to uh lure LeBron back and I, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to put my tinfoil hat on here, but they won several lotteries uh, from when LeBron left to when he returned, and it's pretty intriguing. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a this is an all time terrible pick for sure. It honestly didn't even really. Maybe it's just because it's so like known and like I don't know. It just didn't really register with me when I was kind of putting my list together. I think that it's been talked about so much that you ha- you're like vaccinated against Too it. Too obvious. Right? Yeah. You've, yeah. Yeah. You've, you've built up your NBA Twitter brain antibodies and then you don't even like think about it. But I don't think we should undersell that one. That one is really, really bad. I mean, another one you pointed out the next draft, uh, you've mentioned this one before to me, mm-hmm. is um, taking Jabari Parker over Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. Um, very defensible at the time. No doubt. Um, they had lots of reasons to do with the local angle and everything else. But that one also winds up being horrible from Milwaukee's perspective. All right, do you have any other honorable mentions or just final ones you want to get off your chest before we close this thing up, Michael? So I have one more that I, uh, I, I've i been saving just to have a brief little conversation with you about that is pretty philosophical, I think. And these are two decisions I personally think are bad. And I think you think that they're not bad. So they are... I'll just kind of bundle them together uh they're kevin durant's decision to sign with the warriors and oh. kevin durant's decision to leave the warriors and team up with kyrie irving in brooklyn and i know that those are two very separate things and two the circumstances are obviously different for a variety of reasons but i just thought that both were bad and uh i just like for a player who i mean He's all-time dozen best players ever, I think, will be his where he will stand when it's all said and done. And for him to make these two decisions uh, in his prime, are it's just like, I don't know. I, it's never set, sat well with me, particularly the first one going to the Warriors. And it's just getting worse and worse with time, in my opinion. Very painful. I'm scrambling. I'm like trying to like distract you off the scent. Like, what about when the Kings took Jimmer over Clay? Like, I'm I'm like coming up with like other ones that I could throw out there. What about when the uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves drafted a guy who was like five years too old and and targeting Ngombo? Remember that? Um, another great hit from uh, from David Kahn. Well, here's the deal. I look at these two de- uh, decisions very distinctly. Okay. I do not like and never liked from the moment it happened, the Brooklyn Nets decision. 
I thought he just picked the wrong guy to team up with. I thought he picked the wrong franchise as a platform. I thought he picked the wrong timing and, and execution of how the whole thing rolled out. I basically disagreed with it every single step of the way. And to be clear, I support every player's right to do what they want. If that's what's going to make him happy to play buddy ball uh, with his guys in, in Brooklyn, go for it. Um, but I just do not co-sign. I'm so skeptical of it. I doubt they're going to make any meaningful noise in the playoffs with that group together. And this season, the, the franchise was just in shambles right on schedule. So that, that one, I'm going to grant you. The Golden State one, will history look back on it with a little bit less skepticism? He got the two finals uh, MVPs. He got the two titles. He played on a team that was arguably the greatest collection of talent in NBA history. Their run through the 2017 uh, to the finals and then through the title is only, you know, kind of forgotten or uh, in my view, undervalued because they broke the sport and broke everyone's, you know, there was no competitive interest because they were just too good for everyone that they played. Yes. And to a certain degree, I give those guys credit for that. Mm. Like it's good to master your craft. Mm. I know other people don't agree, um, I don't agree. but I will always stand up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, haters never do. Um, Look, it wasn't the ideal way that I wanted his first title to to play out uh, as a guy who was kind of tracking his every movement throughout his career. Not exactly. Were those teams a lot of fun to cover and to watch for me personally? Yes. Are they going to resonate um, with a wider audience, you know, years and years down the road? Uh, probably not. Um, and did he change his narrative in a way that could wind up being like a net negative for him? through that decision. I can hear your argument on that one as well. But ultimately, like what I believe in is the titles, the rings, um, the, the validation, you know, the, the chase for greatness. And at least his decision, the first one in 2016, set him on that path. So I will always defend it. I hate what this did to the NBA as a competitive enterprise. And people get so lost defending Katie's right to choose his destination without understanding that you can acknowledge that right and still criticize the choice he made, which is kind of where I stand on it. And I just kind of view both of these choices as misreads that were partly born from, I mean, like a particular insecurity and lacking self-awareness on Kevin Durant's part. And going to the Golden State Warriors, knowing like like the expectations that he had for himself going there and how it would change how people perceived him despite the fact that he's leaving the team that just lost to the Golden State Warriors in a classic Western Conference Finals. And I mean, it, it's just like, it's, it's incredible to look back on it and try to like figure out what exactly he's thinking. And at the time, he's talking about how he wants to be happy and, and play this certain style and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, in hindsight, we know that either that's not what he wanted or he never knew what he wanted because a few years later, he Bingo. leaves. So it's like, I don't know. I can't come ter to terms with it. I think in, like, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, you'll just look at basketball reference, if that still exists, and see that he won two finals MVPs, and he put up these ridiculous numbers, and you'll think, wow, he was incredible. And But you, if you live through it, like we did, and you, you kind of knew it, all the context, it just doesn't hold the same weight for me. Well, I'll say this. He didn't know what he really wanted. I think that definitely bore out like you're describing. And I actually think his second decision makes the first one worse. If he had been able to extend the run 
in in Golden State and had just kind of continued to stack up the accolades, the finals, I MVPs, agree with this. the titles. I agree with this. Kind of ke- keep that thing going. Eventually, he could sort of outlast the haters, right? Um, but I think there was still enough, uh, you know, backlash at the point when he was, you know, starting to make moves towards, uh, you know, wanting out. And then he became the bad guy in his final year because he was the one snipping at the media because he was the one distance from his teammates. He's the one who's having his loyalty questioned by Draymond Green in the famous blow up. And then ultimately, uh, through no fault of his own, he's the guy who ended up getting injured. And that injury was the difference between them winning the title or not, period. You know, they win the title if he's healthy. So I think for all of that, it winds up being a really sad story. If he had gone back and just kind of doubled down and said, you know what, I hear all the the criticism from the outside, but this is who I wanted to be. I had clear reasons for, you know, choosing to go to Golden State in the first place and I'm delivering on them. I think he could have slowly tried to, you know, win people over or at least... Um, you know, outlast them. I do remember, I mean, last year's playoffs in the first round where he's putting up 50 points on the Clippers, people were starting to come around to this idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have to crown him. He's the best player in the sport. LeBron's on the sidelines. Like this is his time to shine. And he just never got that validating moment. And I I feel rough for him. And I, I really don't think it's coming in Brooklyn, unfortunately. I just don't. I don't like the setup, the structure, and, and any of it. And so I think it, it winds up turning that injury into one of the ultimate bag- basketball tragedies uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, it's a shame. Uh, people, YouTube is going to treat Katie very, very kindly. People are going to look back <laughs> in 20, 30 years and be like, oh my God, look what this guy could do. Um, you know, he was a bucket, as they like to say on NBA Twitter. All right, Michael, I think we've come to the end of another episode of Open Floor. I'm sure we got at least 10 poor decisions mentioned along the way, but guess what? We need the Open Floor Globe to chime in with their own favorite worst decisions of the last decade. I know somebody over the weekend, just out of the blue, Michael mentioned uh, the Orlando Magic's trade uh, for Sergi Baca as like the trade that just gnaws at them because they could have had Victor Oladipo's prime. That's a great one. I'm sure... Your own team has a move over the last 10 years that drives you crazy or makes you elated with how you were, were able to fleece the other team. Let us know about it. We'd love to hear it. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Michael and I will double back later this week to take your questions, to check in on the NBA's return plans with teams uh, finally headed down to Orlando to get themselves inside that bubble. So keep all those questions, comments, and uh, you know quips coming our way. Check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Oliver. On Twitter at Ben Golliver. Check out my Washington Post newsletter on the decision 10 years later this week and a whole bunch of other stories coming. WashingtonPost.com slash sports. All right, Michael. Until later this week. I will talk to you. Talk soon, man.